come to our 20th lecture on the great doctrines of the Bible or the doctrinal structure of the Bible, following the general outline of the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith and Catechism as one of the great Reformation creeds. Now tonight, actually, we come to an entirely new section, so it would be worthwhile to remember where we are, because I trust you remember both those who are here and those who are working with the tapes, that these are not meant to be a series of isolated lectures, but quite the contrary to this, the feeling that the Bible does present a, a systematic um, system, I suppose would be the best thing to say, a systematic uh, presentation of truth, and therefore that the best study of doctrine is not merely a series of isolated doctrines, but quite contrary to this, a comprehension that there is a framework in the scripture. Now, I realize that the word system can have a bad meaning, but it need not have, I would say. So what we're thinking of here is that which would have come down in the years that are past in the historic stream of Christianity under the title Systematic Theology, something like this. Now we began, and we have studied various big sections. The first section, you remember, was of Holy Scripture, and the second section was God, and the question, what God? Because, of course, the word God really doesn't say anything at all until we put content into it, until we tell what we mean. And the first thing under the study of God was the fact that God is a spirit, and as such he is not material, but he is specifically personal. The second study was the Trinity, that the Bible does not present three gods, nor, on the other hand, does it present just one person, who manifest himself in three modes. And we stress the biblical emphasis of the communication between the persons of the Trinity and the love between the three persons of the Trinity. So we have the emphasis of a uh, truly, a truly personal God. And um, with this, with true personality, the absolute and unity and diversity in personality that the teaching of the Trinity gives. We also looked in passing at this, consider the second person as distinct from the first person of the Trinity, uh, but while distinct from the first person that he was true deity, we also considered the third person of the Trinity as a person and distinct from the Father and the Son and true deity. The third point concerning the God of the Bible centered in the study of the decrees of God. The God is infinite, there is no chance back of God, and we studied his decrees in relationship to creation and then to providence. Providence, And then the third point, the first being of Holy Scripture, the second God, the third point, God and man, God's dealing with man. And we have considered the subjects, the covenant of works, the fall, the covenant of grace, the unity of the covenant of grace, and Christ the mediator, which we've just finished. And with Christ the mediator, first of all, we read through some of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Christ as the Messiah, his person, and then his offices as prophet, priest, and king, and finally Christ's humiliation and exaltation. And that brings us then to our new subject, salvation. So this would be subject number four. Number one of Holy Scripture, number two, God, number three, God and man, and number four, um, salvation. Now, under salvation... 
which we would consider as our riches as Christians, or what God has purchased for us, salvation, our riches as Christians, or what, God, what Christ has purchased for us. We'll divide this into two parts tonight, first a transition, and then salvation how, or how to become a Christian. And then we will go on after that, just so you'll have an idea what's ahead, to feel the full force of this, the flow of this. We will look at the past aspect of salvation, if I am a Christian, that is, and that is justification. Then the present riches, our present riches in Christ, the present aspect of salvation, if I am a Christian. Under the terms, the new relationship to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. New relationship in the brotherhood of believers. And sanctification. Then the future aspect of salvation, if I am a Christian. And that is glorification at death and resurrection. And then just so you'll have the whole outline in front of you for the first time, because this is the first time you'd have the whole outline, I think. Point five would be the things of the future. Or eschatology. Now coming back to tonight's, therefore, we are considering salvation, our riches as Christians, or what Christ has purchased for us, and first of all, point of transition. Now I want to read tonight more from the Westminster uh, confession than I have done for a long time or perhaps any time and we must understand in reading from the Westminster Confession or the Synod of Dort any of these great creeds of the Reformation and that they were they were writing these against Roman Catholicism and also secular humanism they were writing these creeds against Roman Catholicism and secular humanism as well so in all the creeds of the Reformation, they were writing uh, against these things, against the humanism of Roman Catholicism and the humanism in the secular world. You would have Farrell, for whom our place of study is named, Farrell House, who was uh, in the midst of his discourses uh, with the Roman Catholic Church, nevertheless, was very, very plain in also uh, standing against Erasmus, and uh, secular humanism. And this comes down through the great creeds. Of course, the Westminster Confession is considerably later in this, but nevertheless one of the Reformation subordinate symbols. So when we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Synod of Dort, for example, we must understand they're leaning against these things. Thus, uh, in writing, their emphasis is slanted specifically against the humanistic emphasis in the Roman Catholic system and uh, the secular history, or the secular humanism which surrounded them. Because of this, they did not put as much emphasis as would give a completely balanced position, it would seem to many others, uh, upon, uh, with a, uh, at this point, they did not give a sufficient emphasis upon what I would call the conscious side of either justification or sanctification. But... This is not a basic criticism because they believe this. It was just simply they were in a position where they were writing uh, against a certain situation and so put their emphasis in this direction. Of course, we mustn't back off from our study of the decrees of God either. That is a portion of the biblical teaching, and as such, it is quite properly expressed uh, in the creedal standards.
of the Reformation. Putting this emphasis on this side of the side of God, we might speak at this point, uh, makes the difference between a Reformed creed or a Calvinistic creed uh, and an Arminian emphasis. And so the uh, Reformed, not just in the sense of knowing the Reformation, but Reformed or Calvinistic in opposition to the Arminian side always puts its emphasis on the side of God and his decrees and his acts. There's an explanation. It's not an, not an apology for the Westminster Confession of Faith, but simply to read it with deep comprehension. This is not only a problem, of course, in the creedal statements of the, uh, of the Reformation. Uh, if you consider the creeds down into the early church from the earliest creeds, you almost must understand what they're writing against in order to see the balance of their writing. But in the, the point of the Reformation, especially after the rise of Arminianism and Arminius, it's very natural that the Reformers did put their emphasis where they placed it. Consequently, in this regard, now remember what we're doing, we're studying salvation, but first of all, the transition, uh, point of transition between what we have had moving in uh, to the study of salvation and how uh, we have salvation at this point of transition. And uh, we would read an illustration of what I've just said a couple moments ago of their emphasis and a very proper emphasis and a biblical emphasis, and yet you have to understand uh, that it is uh, speaking uh, against those errors against which they were speaking. One would find it in the title uh, of Saving Faith in the Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 14, the first section. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. It's a perfectly biblical statement, but you will notice the emphasis uh, that I spoke of before. Of course, the, you also notice the emphasis upon the Bible here. In our own generation, constantly men are minimizing the work of the Bible and trying to say the creeds, the old creeds, didn't, do not have the same emphasis on the written word that the Bible-believing Christian would have today. And as we studied up Holy Scripture, we found this was not so. Uh, but I would just point it out in this section. And is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. And the text they use here is in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Now, they could have gone on and used others to put an emphasis on the written word. And uh, that would be easy to do, but we've already looked back uh, at this in the first section. But you would notice here, then, that the emphasis is uh, on the ministry of the word, and with this passage in Matthew, the emphasis to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And this brings us down not to something that is dry and dusty in the past, but very much up to date, because it immediately puts its emphasis on the fact that you can't expect to have salvation unless you have the proper content. And this is 20th century thinking, of course. The fact that in our own generation, as we deal so often here, uh, and as we saw in the writings of someone like Richardson or a speech of like Richardson, the emphasis would be placed upon the existential experience of men quite devoid of, contact or, uh, of content, or at least not mattering about the content. But this is not the emphasis of the creeds. It's certainly not the emphasis of historic Christianity. 
and it isn't the emphasis of the scripture itself. Salvation does not rest upon a bare existential contentless uh, existential experience. It rests upon content and the proper content. So immediately you feel a, a strong thing here, something that is contrary uh, to 20th century thinking. In its emphasis upon God, it is true, um, and the, uh, the emphasis, as we shall see, against the salvation by works in any way, but even at this point here of the word and the concept of content this brings into it. Now, in this point of transition, I do want to read various sections and the emphasis, the fact that no works can save. No works can save. I want to do this for two specific reasons. The first is that the Reformed, the Reformed creeds are sometimes maligned uh, in um, saying that there is an emphasis on the sacraments as needed for salvation. This is not true. It just simply is not true. Um, the emphasis is all in the other direction in the creeds. Their expression sometimes do not fit that expression which we are used to in the 20th century. But there certainly is at every turning of the way an emphasis in the Reformed creeds, in the creeds of the Reformation, that we are not saved by works. We are not saved by works. And when the liberal today would try to take the creed and make it into his own, uh, he must go against not just a few little details, but against the grain, uh, the grain of the whole situation. On the other hand, neither do you have a, uh, neither do you have a form of grace presented in the creeds that would be related to Karl Barth's concept of grace whereby man is less than a man until God speaks to him, just a stone to be moved, as it were, uh, uh, something to be struck by lightning. This isn't there either. The balance, I would say, in the creeds are really magnificent at this particular point. Now, so the two reasons I would stress this in the transition, spend some time on tonight, is, first of all, because the creeds have been maligned by those who would say they're not really evangelical, other uh, tend to be sacerdotal. And in the second uh, thing that, um, in the second factor also of them speaking to our generation with an emphasis that uh, is not just theoretical, it isn't just a, uh, a point of man's mistake in the concept of Bonhoeffer, uh, mistakes that have been made in the past, not at all. It isn't this, and this is something that is uh, the part of the warp and woof of this thing and it is scriptural. Salvation is not by works in any, any regard, of any kind. Now, one of the things sometimes people would say is the men of the Reformation put too much emphasis on repentance. But I would point out to you that the creed in this particular case, the one we're looking at here, the Westminster Confession of Faith, makes it very plain that men are not saved by repentance. That would be first. The first form of works I would point out that it's emphasized here that cannot save is that repentance cannot save. Repentance cannot save. I'm in section 15, chapter 15 of the Confession of Repentance Unto Life, sections 1, 2, and 3. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. The two things are to be preached. By it a sinner, out of sight, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, 
so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them unto God, proposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. So grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, proposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all, in all the ways of his commandments. And the third, third point. Although repentance is not to be rested in as of any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. It's a very finely balanced section. I commend it to you. You will notice it says expressly that repentance cannot be the basis for uh, satisfaction for sin or the pardon thereof. Repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof. So it says very expressly here uh, that um, the base of our salvation and the base of pardon for sin is not repentance. Yet, it goes on and says, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. This is a very finely balanced sentence, section. What it's saying is that you, you mustn't preach a cheap salvation. And I must say, I feel that very often in our evangelism today, we would do well to be admonished by such a section. Uh, the Bible does not say that we can believe on Christ as Savior and uh, do it in a, on a level uh, wherein there is no sorrow for our sin. This is not so. One may, you know, a modern man, especially if you're dealing with a modern intellectual man today, has trouble with guilt because we have been so conditioned against the concept of guilt, totally con conditioned against the concept of guilt. In theological circles, psychological uh, circles, it is always the same. Guilt today is guilt feelings. There is no real moral guilt. So modern man has a job coming to a sense of guilt, really. Uh, but nevertheless, while it is true that our contact with modern man, therefore, largely is in the sense of his meaninglessness and his deadness rather than guilt, yet nevertheless, surely the scriptures make manifest to us that if a man is ready to accept Christ as his Savior, he must have a realization of his guilt and accept the fact of his guilt. So there is such a thing as preaching a cheap salvation, which is no salvation at all. In the States, for example, in these last few years, Tozier, before his death, spoke a great deal against this thing, the, of the, the cheap salvation, a salvation that has no sense of, of real repentance, of sorrow for sin. So here you have uh, the thing I would point out, first of all, then, is it makes very, very plain and Please defend our brethren in the past when they are decried. Uh, it makes very, very plain that repentance is not the basis for our salvation. It is no base. It is not the basis for satisfaction for sin. It is not the base for the pardon thereof. But it quite properly says there is a proper and important place for the preaching of repentance. So I would go on for a moment and emphasize the sections 4, 5, and 6 of this chapter 15. They're short, easy to read quickly, which does stress that repentance does have an important place. 4. 
as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. A beautiful sentence. Every sin brings damnation. There is no such thing as a sin so small that one may commit it against the holy God without being worthy of damnation. Yet, nevertheless, the greatest of sinners can have forgiveness if he comes really repentant. And, of course, the emphasis is not here, but it is included in the section above and puts his faith in Christ. You have Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And Isaiah 1, 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be as red as like crimson, they shall be as wool. And this is a, the message of the good news, of course. There is no sin so great that a man must be lost because of the doing of it if he is truly repentant, and then goes on uh, to accept Christ as Savior. Fifth section, men ought not to, be, not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. Very, I love these, these sentences. We don't write like this anymore, and I don't think it's to our gain, actually. Men ought not to content themselves with general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins, particularly. And uh, this would tie in, I would point out, with our study of true spirituality, our sermons on true spirituality, the, uh, the bringing of particular sins to the Lord. And the sixth section, as every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and the forsaking of them he shall find mercy. So he that scandalizeth his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended, who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. It's again something we don't know much about today, but there is certainly, again, it is scriptural. Again, it would fit in, I would say, in our studies of true spirituality, so I'll not say more about it. Well, what we've said is now in this transition, no works can save, and expressly repentance cannot save, and yet it has an important place. To go on now in the fact that general moral works cannot save. General moral works cannot save. And uh, I would read the confession again. As I say, I'm reading more tonight than I have for a long time, or perhaps any lesson, but it's the place to read it, I think, right at this point. Um, in chapter 16... Verse 1, or section 1, chapter 16, section 1, chapter 16 is entitled, Of Good Works, Of Good Works. And, of course, you must remember they're writing into, uh, into the Roman Catholic problem. Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal, or upon any pretense of good intention. A very fine thing to remember, that the, the question of what are, what are good works is to be ascertained from the Bible and not from the mere sociological whim of our own moment of history. Whether one is thinking of the Roman Catholic building their own set of good works quite, con quite apart from Scripture or the modern concept of good works, 
uh, of the modern theologian or a modern society centered in a sociological good, something like this, or a psychological good, this word speak, should speak to us. Good works to the Christian are those things that are pointed out in the world, word of God as good works. Now then, however, man cannot be saved by good works. Sections 4, 5, and 7 of chapter um, 16, 4. They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to supererogate uh, and to do more than God requires that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. Here, of course, they're speaking against the Roman Catholic teaching of the saint. The saint is a man who theoretically has done more than is necessary. And this, of course, is the basis theologically of the concept of the indulgence, that there is such a thing as men who have done more than is necessary. And uh, this extra may be found in the depository of grace in the, of the church. But uh, they quite properly point out this is not so. This is not possible. And Luke, they give Luke uh, 17.10, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all these things which are commanded, commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. And certainly this is the scriptural teaching. Uh, it is impossible to do enough to be saved. It is certainly doubly impossible if you can double infinity uh, to uh, do more than is necessary to be accepted by God. Whether you put it in the immediate step of being accepted on the basis of your works or the take a step away of murdering the merit of Christ, which is the Roman Catholic theology. Surely there is nothing uh, that allows us any hope for such a thing in Scripture. It is against the teaching of the Bible. A man cannot be saved by general moral works. The fifth section, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great um, disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that is between us and God, by, uh, by whom, excuse me, uh, between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. And because, as they are good, they proceed from his spirit, and as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed, with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Something, again, would be well to study in detail. It is impossible because of the infinite, um, the infinite distance that is between us and God to, uh, to wipe out the debt of our former sin. And even the things which, after we're Christians, we do through his Spirit, as it says here, we defile uh, with our perfection and our weakness. And this is perfectly true, and it brings up the whole question, of course, of motivations. And uh, again, a very modern thing, but here we find that the, it's, these men were already dealing with these same problems. And then finally, the seventh section, and um, I'll read the old form if any of you get hold of the Presbyterian Church's um, 
reprinting of the Westminster Confession of Faith, you'll find they changed this, but I'll read it in its old form, which is stronger, which I think is better, really. Section 7, uh, under Good Works. Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them, they may be things which God command, and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God, or make a man meet to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. It is not true that the Reformation creeds did not see degrees of heinousness. I won't go into that tonight because it isn't our subject, but you'll find if you search through the, the, um, the catechism questions, there are specific statements about the fact that there are degrees of heinousness. And it is not that there are not such things held forth as relative goods. But nevertheless, as it says here, man at his best cannot be accepted by God upon uh, his moral works. Now, all these sections would bear a great deal of uh, discussion, but I don't want to do it tonight. I just simply want to present them to you um, in the light of the transition from what we have been studying to the to salvation. The emphasis upon the fact that nothing can commend us to God in the area of works, not repentance, not general good works, and yet, nevertheless, this does not minimize the repentance, nor does it minimize the good works. In um, section 20, or chapter 20, chapter 20, of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience, of Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. Just the first section. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God, and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law. They simply use the word here, uh, using this term for the Old Testament saints. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjective. And in, greater bold, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, and in four communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. Here you have an emphasis on the fact that um, we are not saved by works, and this is placed, I would point out, this particular time, uh, that uh, as being true of the Old Testament believer, looking forward to the coming of Christ just as much as the New Testament believer looking back upon him. This would be related to our study of the unity of the covenant of grace and that in all dispensations men are saved only on the basis of the finished work of Christ and in no dispensation at any place at any time by works, whether before the cross or after the cross. So this particular section uh, puts its emphasis, not only says this is the only way to be saved, uh, not by works, but so, but it says it includes all men since the fall. Have the same emphasis on the fact that works cannot help us for salvation, general moral works. 
uh, in the Longer Catechism. Longer Catechism number 94. Hope you don't get bored. But uh, I think this is the place to feel the force of how strongly our forefathers emphasized the fact that salvation had nothing to do with works. We sometimes forget that the liberal in his teaching is not only out of line with the scripture, but he's out of line with the whole Reformation doctrine and mentality, completely so. And, of course, I just say in passing, they themselves understand this. Very often Bonhoeffer would in his emphasis upon the fact that the church has made a mistake for 2,000 years, something like this. Um, but we must not forget it, that uh, the direction in adding a humanistic effort in any area is contrary to the Judistic Christian tradition, the Old and the New Testament, that is, uh, and it is also contrary to the whole uh, Reformation mentality. Number 94, is there any use of the moral law to man since the fall? Although no man since the fall can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law, yet there is grace use thereof. As well common to all men, as as procure either to the unregenerate or the regenerate. So it says, there's a use for the law, but no man can attain to righteousness and life by the moral law, that is, by keeping it. Ninety-six. It would be well to have this ground into your bones, I would suggest, so you don't forget, because you'll, we, we meet this on every side, under a hundred different forms, with a hundred different faces, the creeping in of the humanistic concept. But we, we should understand that when, as we do here, we put our emphasis upon the stream of historic Christianity. This is not just an apologetic phrase, in the sense of being a clever phrase for conversation. But it's real. There is a stream of historic Christianity. There is. And uh, it is centered in this tremendous fact that man cannot come to God on a humanistic base, either of wisdom, he needs the, he needs the revelation of God, or of uh, being accepted by God in the light of God's holiness. And our forefathers, whether we're thinking of the Synod of Dort or the Lutheran uh, Confession or in... Anglo-Saxon land, either in the Scottish area or the uh, in English, it makes no difference whatsoever. This emphasis is is entirely to insisted on. It was insisted upon by all the branches of the Reformation: the Calvinist, the Lutheran, Zwingli, the Anglican, the better elements of the Anabaptist. All these people uh, had this as as very much a uh, a key point something like the fortress that faces us here across the valley, uh, a key point upon which other things turn. No humanistic uh, place, please, is their great emphasis. And so when we say we belong in the historic stream of Christianity, we're not just talking. As we, in our Farrell House lecture a week or so ago, when we looked at the, uh, the, the early church in history uh, from uh, the time of Christ on to the time of Charlemagne, the same emphasis in history. We are in the stream of this thing, but we're not only in the stream of it in a, uh, in a historic sense, but in a doctrinal sense. There is such a thing, and we must keep insisting upon it, it seems to me, or we lose our own comprehension as well as cease to be able to talk to men. There is such a thing as a historic stream of Christianity. And these men were tremendous in their emphasis at this point. In 96... 
Question 96, what particular use is there of the moral law to unregenerate man? Now, here is the place where any weakness would show up. The moral law is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their consciences to flee from the wrath to come and to drive them to Christ. Or upon their continuance in the estate and way of sin to leave them inexcusable and under the curse thereof. Not a, not a, a note, not a place for salvation by works. None at all. This, uh, this little phrase here, to drive them to Christ, is a beautiful phrase. A beautiful phrase. That's what the law should be. This is why Luther said there must be two halves to the preaching of the gospel, the law and the gospel. Without the preaching of the law, there is no preaching of the gospel. Not really. The law should drive men to Christ in showing them how how much they need him. That is 96, 149, dealing with a different subject, but touches on this one. 149, longer catechism. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? Answer, no man is able either of himself or by any grace received in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Now, it's perfectly true this has been sometimes misused by men acting as though because we do break them in daily in thought, word, and deed that it doesn't matter and we shouldn't seek to find a conscious aspect of salvation. But there's nothing of this here by necessity. What it simply says is that not only for the unsaved man who cannot keep the law, the law of God perfectly, even the Christian cannot keep the commandments of God perfectly in this life. In uh, 152 of the Longer Catechism, what doth every sin deserve at the hands of God? Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God, and against his righteous law, deserveth his wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come, and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. be worth writing this certainly, where we can read it from time to time. Every sin, even the least. I always bought my books secondhand when I was a student because that was the cheapest way to get them. And the one who owned this before me wrote in, every sin, even the least, in the margin. That's a very good thing to have there. Every sin, even the least, being against the sovereignty, goodness, and holiness of God and against his righteous law, deserveth his wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come and cannot be expiated but by the blood of Christ. In James 2, 10 and 11, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. You can have all the rest. In Galatians 3, 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. One was going to be received by God on the basis of one's good works. One would have to have perfection at every point. I think it's worthwhile reading a few of the shorter catechism questions. It's a repetition in a way, but I, I just feel that one can't say this too strongly. Shorter Catechism, question 39. What is the duty which God requireth a man? Answer, the duty which God requireth a man is obedience to his revealed will. 40. What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? Answer, 
The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. 41. Wherein is the moral law uh, summarily command, uh, comprehended? Answer. The moral law is comprehended, summarily comprehended, in the Ten Commandments. The moral law summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. 42. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. You will notice here this is given as law. This is perfectly true. From time to time I find people who say, well, they expect God to, re to accept them as they are, and when I ask them on what basis, they say they keep um, these commands to love the Lord and one's neighbor, the golden rule or something of this nature. And I always tremble at this point. To love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul, with all our strength and with all our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Surely this is a law that we break. Surely is a law we break every day of our lives. Surely if we were to be received upon the basis of this law by God, we would never be received. Just never. Never in ten billion years. Never for the things we have done in the past. Not in the things we've done for today. Not in the things unhappily we will do tomorrow. And that isn't just someone else. It's surely we ourselves and it's not someplace else. Surely it's here in this community. It's simply to, leave it, to love our neighbor as ourself is something which we do not keep. Unhappily. So this is law. It's quite proper here. This uh, development of the uh, of the shorter catechism is worth thinking about. You have the moral law, and then the law of moral law is summed up by the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are summed up, and of course that's not just the theologians saying so, it's Christ did so, uh, summed up in these two commandments. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Shorter Catechism 82. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? Answer, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth break them, doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. And 84, what doth every sin deserve? Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. So now we've had our, we've read this emphasis on the fact that the creed says very strongly, no one can expect to be accepted by God on the basis of general moral good works. But you remember when we saw the uh, emphasis as to repentance, that no one could be received on the basis of repentance, yet we saw that there was an emphasis that repentance had its important place. And the same thing is true in the balance here, as we're considering this transition. Nobody can be saved on the basis of general moral good works, Yet, moral good works have their important place. The balance is very nicely turned here. Going back and reading just a few of these sections at this point, in the Confession again, in chapter 16, chapter 16 of the Confession, section 3, though there's a lot of your English and British here tonight, just take the 39 articles if you're in the Church of England and you can go down through the same sort of exercise, though it isn't as uh, detailed, perhaps, but the same thing. And um, the Confession of Faith, Chapter 16, um, 
section 3, chapter 16, section 3. Um, Their ability to do good works is not at all themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto beside the graces they have already received. There is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure in this section. Yet are they not thereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. The emphasis here, uh, again, you cannot be saved on the basis of moral good works, but it does not mean you may minimize them. And that is speaking here to Christians expressly. And in the sixth section of this same chapter, Yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him. And that's a very fine word. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Surely it is true, accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. Yet, nevertheless, it doesn't mean that the good works are unimportant into the Christian or to be despised. In um, chapter 19, chapter 19, sections 5, 6, and 7, the same thing. This is chapter 19, incidentally, is of the law of God. Chapter 5, uh, section 5, 6, and 7. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God, the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much rather strengthen this obligation. It's not, it's not saying a legalistic emphasis, but it's saying because we have accepted Christ as our Savior, that this does not break our responsibility before God as Creator, nor Christ in His teaching. In the sixth section of chapter 19, although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works. Now, if you've kept in mind our previous study of the covenant of works, you realize this is an emphasis again. You are not saved by being good. And you are not now under the law as a covenant of works. That ended at the fall. To be thereby justified or condemned, yet is of great use to them. So we're not saved on the basis of works. We're not under the covenant of works in this sense, yet it's of use to us as well as to others. In that as a rule of life, informing of them the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly discovering also the sinful pollutions of their nature, hearts, and lives, so as, examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sin, and the threatenings of it serve to show that even their sins deserve that uh, to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect from for them, although freed from the curse thereof threatened in the law. The promises of it in like manner show them God's approbation of obedience 
and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof. Although not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, so as a man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under the gra- under grace. This is a statement against saying this does not make for a slavish legalism. Sometimes people, I would say in passing, pit love against this kind of a thought and say, if you just, just love is enough, love is enough. But it seems to me this is a confusion. Surely love should be the motivation. But we know what pleases God from his revelation. I always think in myself, and it's very helpful to me in my own thinking in these areas, that love is, the, the, is like the engine. But you need to be told what pleases our loving Father. And that for this we need his revelation. And the moral law still speaks to us. It is the tracks upon which the train runs. You can have the tracks without the engine, unhappily. Then nothing happens. But if you have the engine without the tracks, you can get into difficulty. Because love is love is the should be the motivation for doing those things that God tells us uh, lovingly in His Word, those things which please Him. This is not an antithesis. This is it can become a legalism. To many people who have followed these things, it has become a legalism in a bad sense, but it doesn't need to. It's not inherently a part of the thing. In the seventh section of chapter 19, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but to sweetly compel with it the Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. Very, very lovely balance, I think. The power is in the Spirit of Christ, not in ourselves, uh, but nevertheless the Lord has very graciously told us what pleases him and that's a good thing he has because we're surrounded by a very wicked world and sometimes we can become confused I would say even when we mean to do better love is no standard love is no standard you some of the most horrible crimes in history have been committed in the name of love so we are this is not to be seen as a legalism I'm speaking at the point of transition between what we studied and the question of salvation. The emphasis I'm giving is uh, the fact that man is not accepted upon general good works, yet nevertheless, this does not mean that good works are not important and that the study of the moral law is not important. Just a little bit more in uh, chapter uh, chapter 20 of Christian Liberty and the Liberty of Conscience, section 3. Section 3. They whom, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that, being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. This is certainly true. They who, upon the pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any lust, they've missed the mark. They just missed the teaching of the Word of God. And I do feel that our own generation of evangelicals make a mistake. Uh, We don't emphasize enough God's hatred of sin. We don't understand enough uh, what it means to, 
to face a holy God and be thankful we have been saved on the basis of the finished work of Christ, but now are called to be his children and exhibit his character of love and holiness to a lost and a dying world. Just a few longer catechism questions, and I'm done all this. On the uh, fact that while we are not, we cannot be saved on the basis of general moral good works, yet nevertheless, this doesn't mean that um, this subject has no importance or is to be despised. In uh, longer catechism number five, of what use is the moral law to all men? Answer. The moral law, law is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and will of God. I might say in passing, uh, it is related absolutely that the liberal, having taken the loose view he uses of Scripture, comes to the loose view he has of God. So today the word holy among the new theologians never has to do with, his, with any moral content. The word holy today among the new theologians always refers to God, the fact that God is God. And we should feel a feeling of awe in the presence of this God. But there's no moral sense at all. No moral sense at all. You find this over and over again in the writings of the new theologians. God is holy. What does this mean? It's just robbed of all moral content. Instead of that, you just say, it means God is God. You need to feel awe before him. But this is not so when you read the scriptures. It just isn't this way. There is a moral content to the character of God. And so this is a quite proper statement, this first little section here, of what use is the moral law to God. And there is, let's see, A, B, C, D, E, five sections here. The moral law is of use to all men to inform them of the holy nature and the will of God and of their duty binding them to walk accordingly, to convince them of their disability to keep it and of the sinful pollution of their nature, hearts, and lives, to the humble them in the sense of their sin and misery, and thereby help them to a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience. Very fine statement. Of what use is the moral law to all men? I don't mean we might not change the wording if we were speaking for 20th century people today. Uh, we might change the wording in certain places. We might have certain theological places where we'd make slight differences, but the emphasis is right out. In 97, what special use is there of the moral law to the regenerate? Although they that are regenerate and believe in Christ be delivered from the moral law as a covenant of works, so as thereby are neither justified nor condemned, yet beside the general uses thereof common to, uh, to them with all men, it is of special use to show them how much they are bound to Christ for his fulfilling it and enduring the curse thereof in their stead and for their good, and thereby to provoke them to more thankfulness and to express the same in their greater care to conform themselves thereunto as the rule of their obedience. This would be related to the active and passive obedience of Christ. Of course, we have studied and our thankfulness, we should be thankful for both.